The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon Peter Show and the Summer of 82 at 40 series. Cue it, press. The Summer of 82 at 40. It's a week of a weekend look at the movie's release during the summer of that year. As always, along from the journey, he was the man behind Mendelssohn's memos. Now he is just one of the one of the many folks over at the lovely Forbes. Scott Mendelssohn. Always a pleasure to be back. All right. Thank Scott. you for having me as always. Oh, of course. Scott, this episode we'll be looking, we'll be crossing over from July to August. This is the first weekend we've had that was technically two months. So we're July 30th, 31st, and August 1st that weekend going going on through. But as we, you know, as we turn July into our final month of August, just want to let you guys know there's been a Patreon this whole time here that you can visit and check out. Uh, sometimes I just pop every episode for a week in on the Sunday before they air on Monday, so you can get them a little bit early. Uh, Scott and I, of course, as we record this, we might have hit the goal of $20 to do The Sword and the Sorcerer and Porky's at the end of all this. Uh, so there's that. It, there's no requirement for Patreon. You're not missing out on any audio. And it's just sort of if you want to say, hey, keep it up, guys. Or, you know what? You've been doing a lot of rentals this summer. I'd like to help you reimburse them. Because, I mean, there have been some movies that... Whoo, dozens and dozens of dollars spent. Dozens. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the Patreon... Donate to the Patreon or I'm sending Brandon a bill. All right, patreon.com slash Brandon Peters Show. Please donate fast, uh, fast and soon. So anyways, uh, let's head on as we do always the beginning, the news of the moment. It's the news of the moment. Never before in the history of the American stage have you seen such high drama. You don't meet nice boys when you live on Skid Row, Mr. Bushnick. Suspense. Little red dots all over the floor. And romance. It's bone chilling. It's spine tingling. It's a musical. It's a nifty laugh right entertaining as it is exotic little shop of horrors. Don't shop around. Go see it at the Westwood Playhouse. On July 26th this week, Karen Diane Baldwin, 18 years old of Canada, was crowned Miss Universe. So we've had Miss we've had like we've had Miss America, Teen Miss USA, and Miss Universe all in one summer each month. On July 27th, Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's first visit to the U.S. in almost 11 years. July 27th, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman's musical Little Shop of Horrors opens off-Broadway at the Orpheum Theater in New York City. Little shop, little Little shop shop of horrors, little shop, little shop of terror. I don't know the rest of the words. Later in the decade would be adapted with uh, Rick Moranis and Steve Martin. One of these days I need to rewatch. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, in July 30th, the USSR performs underground nuclear test. Those are always fun. There's a lot of, like, they have noted, like, a lot of, like, nuclear tests during this time. Good like, thing Russia is cool now. All right. Cool. Uh, July 31st, Finland, Italy, Germany, Austria, and France formed the American European Football Federation, the AEFF. That's Soccer. less scary than I thought you were going with that. Right? Yeah, it's built up, and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> Nuclear tests to football. Uh, it's just football. All right. On August 1st, American Greg Luganis becomes the first diver to score for 752.67 in 11 dives in winning the three-meter springboard gold world championships in Guayaquil, Ecuador? Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> on August 1st, also, heavy Israeli air bombardment on Beirut. Oh. War. Uh, there was also- The thing is, Israel is cool now. Right. <clears throat> I'm Jewish. I can say that. Uh, also, uh, that swimming contest, same one. East German swimmer Petra Schneider breaks her own 400-meter medley world record by 19 seconds. And uh, lastly, August 1st, after- the first 13 runnings of the Midsummer Classic, Daryl Waltrip becomes the first driver to win the Talladega 500 <gasps> twice. Mazel. Yeah. Keep that engine running. Uh, we have uh, passing away in this week, Vladimir K. Zworkin. He's a Russian-American inventor. The, he was involved in the development of television's cathode ray tube. So the TV, basically. And Harold Takata, the actor, he passed away. Birthdays this week. Yvonne Strahovski, cult leader Allison Mack, and Demarcus Ware. <laughs> she wasn't a leader. She was just a groomer. For once, that word is being used properly. Thank you. Somebody save me. <laughs> Who knew that theme song was a cry for help from her victims? Who knew? As someone who watched Smallville from the very start, I can see it. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, oh, stop no. talking before I get canceled. From Smallville to Big Time, our first movie is Forced Vengeance. Bum, 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 bum. For Josh Randall, Hong Kong was just a stopover on the way home from Nam. That's supposed to be really. But soon he was captivated by the charm of the people. <laughs> At least most of the people. <laughs> Randall doesn't have to look for trouble. He is trouble. <laughs> Chuck Norris is forced vengeance. Rated R. Starts tomorrow at selected theaters and drive-ins. Consult newspaper for theaters. Directed by James Fargo. Written by Franklin Thompson and James Fargo. Starring Chuck Norris, Mary Louise Weller, Camilla Griggs, and Michael Cavanaugh. A casino security guard is forced into violence when the Hong Kong mob threatens his friends. So this one comes to us. Yes, it's a Chuck Norris movie. But uh, director James Fargo, he is like... He's like an Eastwood guy because he directed The Enforcer every which way but loose. He was a production manager. He did like Joe Kidd, High Plains Drifter, Outlaw Josie Wales. But he also directed Voyage of the Rock Aliens, which is a great B-movie, folks. It's a musical. Craig Sheffer um, has a song called Nature of the Beast on there, which check it out, folks. It's 
dynamite. Uh, but this guy also directed uh, episodes of Scarecrow, Mrs. King, Hunter, 90210. His unit production manager days go back to Jaws. He did a second unit directing on Andro- and the Andromeda Strain, High Plains Drifter, Sugarland Express, Iger Sanction. So he's a real deal Like around this time. Those are big titles. Uh, big directors. He's assistant directing. Eastwood, Spielberg. Multiple Spielbergs, I must say. It was two. Chuck Norris, uh, this and Silent Rage come out in 82. Lone Wolf McQuaid is the next year. This one's following Eye for an Eye and The Octagon, which my screenwriting professor was the first AD on that movie, Skip Sergine. He's probably not listening to this podcast, but hey, Skip. He also, um, he was sold to it. Like, that was a cool cred, but he was told, we were told um, with the class to sell it on was like, oh, well, he was the first AD on uh, Norma Ray. That was, that was how you take the class. And he was uh, always late to class. And then the head of the department came one day. It's like, you guys can send your complaints if you want. <laughs> they gave us one of those speeches. So, but cool guy. I liked him. Even though he was, we got 45 minute class, we mostly were taught for 20 minutes every day, but hey. Oh, good. Uh, Weller, the writer, um, lots of TV, Cue the Winged Serpent, Blood Tide. He would guest on Quincy and then call it a career. That's all he's got. So, Force Vengeance, the biggest budgeted Chuck Norris film at the time. Scott, Force Vengeance that you're not welcoming, it's forced upon you. <laughs> it was, you, you just said, yeah, it was the biggest budgeted film. And frankly, it looks it. It's a polished, relatively big seemingly shot on location and you know sorry a cat just walked in uh authentic looking action drama mm-hmm. um it has big sets big locations lots of extras things that we used to take for granted before the streaming era it's not a good movie i don't want to oversell it mm-hmm. but i it's clearly a case of norris trying to make a movie where he gets to act at least as much as he gets to kick people um there's actually very little action until the last 20 25 minutes uh, there are periodic bursts of plot specific violence even then i would say up until the last 20 minutes when everything goes to hell it's a pretty restrained picture it's r-rated don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but it's not wallowing in blood and gore um it's not as extreme as to my recollection silent rage um which was about i like a genetically enhanced serial killer or something like that no uh- uh, wait, no. Uh, I the silent uh, Chuck Norris's serial killer movie is. Uh, Sorry, I'm getting these mixed up. Obviously, no. Let me see. That one is Hero and the Terror. That's the I believe that's oh, the slasher right, 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 one. Right, right. Yep. Well, this one's just about yeah, a mentally ill man who gets granted near instructability. But anyway, different movie. Um, <laughs> this one, I mean, Chuck Norris is not a superb thespian he never was but this is clearly a film where he's in his comfort zone he is acting as much as the movie requires of him uh and i think there is certainly an intent to present a character that even though he's a collector for a a you know a casino boss and mm-hmm. occasionally has to break a thumb or otherwise hurt somebody he's a relatively good person who makes an effort to do his job with minimal violence. Right. And the strange conundrum about Chuck Norris, and I, I felt this way at least since I was knew who he was when I was a kid, is that obviously conserv- you know, he's very politically conservative. He's very right-wing. And I think you know, in the later years, he's certainly gotten a bit more extreme in terms of 
being kind of a bigot. But right. if you go back to his films in the 80s and 90s and Texas Walker, Texas Ranger, he certainly presents himself as a model of what you consider compassionate conservatism mm-hmm. in that his films and shows are very much not just not racist, but anti-racist. Right. You know, he made a film called Top Dog about a, a police dog where the bad guys are racist neo-Nazi militia people trying to blow up a building. Mm-hmm. They had the bad luck of opening like right after night, uh, the Oklahoma City federal bombing. Yeah, they used, to be the against hand, the, they used to be against those people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, you ever, if you ever watched Tex- Walker, Texas Ranger, again, the film or the show, yes, it's, 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 you know, aimed at your, you know, stereotypical grandpas watching CBS on Saturday night, but it's very, you know, don't be a racist asshole. Mm-hmm. And, it's a classic, you know, these, a lot of these pictures and a lot of these shows are classic examples of how stuff like that didn't used to be political. <laughs> you know, it used to be, you made your rough and tumble hero sympathetic by having him beat up a racist or having him beat up a Nazi, or, you know, now if you're lucky, maybe he rescues a puppy and without giving this film too much credit, it's certainly, you know, he makes a comment just out of nowhere where you know he responds to a gay bastard joke by saying, the smartest man I ever met was homosexual. Hmm. And again, in 1982, that was just good writing. I don't think it was trying to, to plant any flags in the sand. Now, as far as being an action film, honestly, it's pretty weak in that sense. It's mostly just him periodically kicking people along with in those five to 20 minutes, the bad guys going sort of hog wild on Norris's friends and family. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a rather graphic sexually, you know, rape murder in this picture. Yeah. I was it's like, just Oh, screen, there we are. Quite. Yeah. I was like, um, well, and, the, you know, the aftermath is like, yes. yeah, yeah, the aftermath like, is plain as day. There's full on nudity. Uh, and his black best friend gets rather horribly murdered. But again, that's, that's the genre. That's what often happens right. in these films, either at the end of the second act or right before the climax, the bad guys invade the good guys hideout and, you know, and, and make their mark. Maybe they kidnap the girlfriend. Maybe they kill somebody, whatever, whatever. But now the hero is pissed off and now he's really primed to go kick some ass in the end. And he's losing the fight until your woman was good, my man. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the, the best of those. And by best, it's of course horribly offensive. Is I think blood sport, where uh, you know, I, I it's implied that the the evil kickboxer had raped Jean Claude Van Damme's girlfriend, mm-hmm. and at the end of the fight, he says something to the effect of, "I don't remember her name. Forgive me." Like you bleed like Shen V. She good fuck. Yeah. And, you know, and again, this is horrible, but it's also like, well, okay. And of course, mm-hmm. Van Damme, you know. And then wins the day. So again, you know, I mean, obviously in a vacuum, this is all very offensive content, but this is the genre. You know, the, yeah. this, these films were not expected to be moral arbiters of society. Right. At their best, they were the bad, you know, the good guy may not be all that good, but he's better than the bad guys. Yeah. He's the necessary evil that we have standing against us and chaos. When when they make these movies and stuff, they're not, yeah, like you said, they're not trying to be a moral arbiter of society, but they're also like, how far can we push things? How bad can yes. we make these people? We got to make them badder than the last movie. And that's the thing. That doesn't mean they condone those actions. They're saying, this is horrible shit. Like, this shouldn't happen. Like, it's not condoned. And this movie shouldn't be watched with like, oh, I hope I learned something special about <laughs> No, you want to see Chuck Norris kick some ass or whatever. And 
yeah, like though, even if this 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 movie, like I I don't I the idea to me of Chuck Norris has always been better than actually sitting down and watching Chuck yes. Norris movies because. This one was weird. This also had a weird thing where the opening credits had the shadow boxing sequence. That I was like, oh, that's an interesting opening credits. And I was like, oh, no, it was a scene from the movie from later. And then they're going to show it to us again in entirety <laughs> when it happens. Yeah. Oh, so it was like the like tw- t- two days earlier type thing. So, and he's just, he's always, he's given some like dynamite lines in these movies and he can't deliver them at all. Like anybody else. You would you would laugh your ass off or something like that, and it's he gets these and he's like, you realize Chuck, that's the punchline. Play it up. And he's like, <laughs> looks like he lit a match before he forgot to, you know, like clear the room or something. And he narrates in this, and it's like, oh Jesus, and it's full of cliches. Like the opening line is Los Angeles, the city of angels, so they say. Like, <laughs> wow, uh, that's uh, guess what movie that is? Yeah. It tries to, you know, it sort of like it sometimes thinks that's a film noir, even though that's not remotely. Oh, what oh it no! Is. Yeah, they try to add that. And then the, the scene where his girlfriend, where we first meet her on their little houseboat, holy crap! Is the everything about it's horrendous. Like it is mm-hmm. ba- like she has no, she only exists to serve him. Like from this dialogue, like she's all about him, and it's just like. He's the greatest guy or whatever. And she's just like, oh my gosh, she's in skimpy stuff in the daytime. Like it's not, it is lingerie wear while they're, I'm like, I get if she was in a swimming suit or something. And she's just wanting to bone when he gets home. But he is just, ooh, I'm too tired, man. And all her lines are just subservient or like just fiend in heat. And then it ends with him like, I'm going to go to bed. He's like, but I still got time for this. And it, it's just, so, it's, it's parody levels bad. Yeah, and I know and, I'm not supposed to treat this like high art, but even for these type of movies, I'm like, this is, it's just noticeable. They just did not give a fuck about the woman oh, character. I mean, like, and the part of the problem is Norris is not a particularly good actor. No, he's not. Um, um, the one movie that I think he was genuinely good in is Andrew Davis's Code of Silence. Yeah, no, Code another, Silence, that's one. That might be that and Lone Wolf McQuaid are like, I think, yeah. best. Yeah, like, um, uh, Delta Force is solid because he's got Lee Marvin to bounce off and you know, yeah. keep him above water. And the missing um, in actions are what they are. But I mean. yeah, the thing about Code of Silence that's another example of a, a a macho action movie that, on its surface, its politics are comparatively you know progressive. Yeah, you have a diabolical CIA with secretly dealing drugs on the side conspiracy. You know, it's the same. Basically, it's very similar plot to Andrew Davis's Above the Law, which was. Steven Seagal's first big mm-hmm. movie. I think Henry Silva's the bad guy in both of them. <laughs> Probably, um, yeah. And you know, it, it says something how good of a director Andrew Davis is that he he got a good performance out of Chuck Norris and two good performances out of Steven Seagal. Right. And you know, that's that's I remember when Above the Law came out, even beyond you know, who is the Steven Seagal person he is interesting. Again, it, it sort of was seen as sort of a different kind of cop movie where you had the cop was, you know, he, he was happily married and was a family man and went to church mm-hmm. and, you know, lashed out against corruption. And, you know, and, you know, Code of Silence, you know, again, one there's there's a subplot in Code of Silence where Chuck Norris goes to town against the police department for covering up a racially motivated murder. Yeah. And again, these these films aren't trying to make a point other than that's bad, dummies. Don't do that. Right. 
Um, and, you know, this goes back to a, a big overall point, which is that when we had more movies that, are, you know, smaller or bigger or needing to be less all-encompassing, they could afford to be about the issues of the day. Right. Because, you know, if you offended a viewer, it wouldn't matter. Right. Right. And I say this a lot is I, I think pop culture has suffered by, you know, 20 years worth of blockbusters that aren't even as racially aware as Wild Wild West. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This movie, like, I think, you know, we had between this Chuck Norris and we had what the challenge last week with Scott Glenn. I like the challenge a lot better than this. Oh, it's a better picture. Yeah. Much better. Uh, Lesser no, you know, in the star department. This might be a hot take, but Scott Glenn's a better actor than Chuck Norris. Better actor, but I mean that one at least had some gore to it. <laughs> yes, uh, some interesting settings. This is, I mean, there's some, there's some interesting Vegas type stuff they have here, but it's, I don't know, sitting watching. This is, I mean, Norris isn't a star performer, but like this, this ain't one of his better hours in terms of performance. I did no. find find things funny here and there with this movie like the uh, super freak knockoff music that was in that one club i was like wait this is super freak oh but kind of not super <laughs> freak but kind of not um but yeah it's i don't know it's just one to like power through i guess for us here. yeah it's, it's not a sense it's inessential chuck norris inessential chuck norris yes uh we'll go from inessential chuck norris to inessential uh se hinton uh with tex Honest mistake, man. Now look. You look, man. You come around here with some samples, and then you come back with the delivery, and that delivery is crap. Now that is no mix-up, man. That's a burn. What do you think we are, man? Stupid. Now you just wait one minute, Kelly. We have been waiting a week, man. Kelly, Don't keep it down, man. What's going on, man? Listen, I'm getting out of here. This guy's nuts. What do you think you're doing? I told you already. I'm leaving. And he's gonna knock. He's gonna knock. Kelly, come on. You're not going nowhere, pal. Directed by Tim Hunter. This is his debut. He would do River's Edge next. Uh, written by Charles S. Haas, who he wrote Tron this summer. Uh, <laughs> he's on that Disney payroll. And Hunter, Tim Hunter also wrote the script from a novel by S.E. Hinton, who also wrote you know, The Outsiders and Rumblefish, which would come out uh, in the following years. Starring Matt Dillon, Meg Tilly, Jim Metzler, Emilio Estevez in his feature film debut, Bill McKinney and Francis Lee McCain. After their mother dies and their father leaves them, teenage brothers Tex and Mason McCormick struggle to make it on their own. Uh, this is for for Meg Tilly. She had One Dark Night the same year, uh, Psycho 2 and The Big Chill the next following year. McCain in here would be, she could be in, uh, she, was in she was like the mom in Gremlins, she was in Footloose, she was grandma and back to the future she'd have stand by me and that she was like 80s you feel the 80s when you see her as a motherly type role she's a guidance counselor or something in this movie yes um this uh, tax was disney's attempt at putting out more mature movies in the theater for people this is this is disney's in a weird spot here um their animations aren't like they like they used to be there they're kind of i don't know I don't know if is um what's his name taken over yet? Uh, no, that's still a few years out. Still a few years out. So this is a wild uh, spot for Disney, but Tex is their first of let's try to uh, put some I assume you mean Katzenberg. Katzenberg? No, uh, uh or Eisner. Sorry. Eisner, yeah, Eisner. Apologies, so, I, yeah. Yeah, Eisner. I almost but, reenacted the plot of the Lion King. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Scott, sorry. uh Tex. Uh good movie. Um, I liked it quite a bit for what it was. It's clearly 
an attempt by Disney to tell a somewhat more grounded salt of the earth character story, character drama mm-hmm. about two frankly impoverished young men in, in quote unquote flyover country America. It wears its heart on its sleeve, but it's also there are moments where it flirts with being a little over the top. There's a strange crime moment starring a very young Zekzio Evanik as a, a criminal hitchhiker. Uh, you would know him from such homicide life on the street. Yep. Uh, damages. And I apologize if I mispronounced his Live name. Live free but, or die hard. Yes. Very the small other, role. The guy that I thought, uh, he's got to be the mole, right? Why yeah, else yeah. did he put in this movie? Uh, I guess he just wanted the easy paycheck. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I saw that with Wendy all those like, he's the I was wrong. Man. Uh, but anyway, good movie. It's obviously one of, you know, alongside The Outsiders and uh, that was then, this was now. The other one that always, uh, Rumblefish, where you know, there's about a, Matt Dillon. <laughs> oh, God. You know, the books that were written between 1967 and 1979 mm-hmm. were sort of seminal in terms of their authentic and sympathetic portrait of that time in those parts of America. Mm-hmm. It's It's very well acted. It's very well staged. It's, you know, it's, it's, and I know I've been saying this a lot over the last couple of months. It's a movie. Yeah. It's just a movie, but it's, it's pretty good. And I think even then it sort of stood out as something surprise, especially from, you know, a Disney live action film. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was their first PG officially or not, but it certainly was one of their first PGs for like a drama. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Was a black hole PG? I'll have to look that up later. Anyway, if it wasn't their first PG, it was one of their first PGs. Um, And that was back, you know, this was three years before the PG-13s. So that actually meant something. And there's very light drug use. There's moments of potential violence. There's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a rape scene by any stretch of the imagination, but you have the sympathetic hero that kind of goes a little too far with his love interest before right. she kind of pushes him back. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's handled with grace and maturity and both parties come to, okay, sorry, whatever, and move on. And um, also the bombshell of him finding out, uh, text discovering that his father's not his yes. father. Yes, that his mother was unfaithful, but that he, you know, the father kind of sort of did the right thing because he was in jail at the time. Yeah, he, he had an understanding. Like, yeah. and the mother, you know, he didn't want the mother to feel guilty about it for yeah. her whole life. So, and it's again, there's not that much more to say about this movie other than it's a very good version of what it wants to be. Yeah, I, I and I, I'm noticing that there's a lack of that I, I like about this era. There's a lot of and through the 80s a bit too, the coming-of-age story taking place in smaller towns, uh, yes. Midwestern, Midwestern uh, flyover states or whatever, and giving them an honest shake and not just the, I need to get out of here type type deal. Just- yes. And, you know, and I think that's partially because that's what was happening then, unfortunately. You know, you had the first couple of years of Ronald Reagan, you had... Mm-hmm. You know, the recession, the various recessions and factories closing down and, you know, basically, you know, Billy Joel's Allentown coming to life all across yeah. the country. Yeah. And or insert your favorite Bruce Springsteen song. Right. And th- I mean, um, there was breaking away a few years before this. That was huge. And like a lot of things. And then outsiders would be this way. I mean, there's I mean, there's stand by me's like, you know, you have that just honest living there. And I and this is kind of where like. 
I feel like the Stranger Things wants to pick up on where they're at and adding the horror stuff to it. Um, well, yeah, I, I agree with you because that was always sort of the subtext in stuff like E.T. and 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 to a lesser extent Poltergeist because that family was pretty, you know, a conventional, functional, economically viable, you know, secure family. But, you know, there was sort of, you know, it, it, it's, you know it's, it's no weird thing to say that a lot of the you know, the Goonies and E.T. was also about, you know, the sort of the disillusion of the conventional family unit, for better or worse, and the struggles and challenges that the kids felt living through that. Mm-hmm. I also think, frankly, that's something that, and again, it's not Stranger Things' job to recreate that particular part of it. Right. But I certainly think that that's an element, especially after the first season, that kind of gets short shrifted right. by the emphasis on fantasy elements. And again, that's the show. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, no, it's, I, you know, it's, I don't expect, you know, I don't expect Stranger Things to turn into the outsiders. Right. Um, especially when I'm the one saying, you should just be watching the outsiders. But yeah, I, I very much, this is one that slipped through the cracks for me. Yeah. I've never even seen though it I'm very aware of the author and I'm very aware of the genre. And as someone that was fortunate enough to grow up in, you know, Northern Ohio, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I found myself very sympathetic to the story that someone that didn't have to have that kind of, you know, that, that kind of childhood. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in a very conventional middle slash upper middle class environment where, you know, really, and this, you know, is sort of my naivety. When I first saw boys don't cry in, in early night or late, early, either early or late 1999, mm-hmm. It wasn't the whole, you know, transgender stuff that got to me because I was aware of that and that's fine, live and let live, yada, yada, yada. But it was the very authentic portrayal of, you know, a stereotypical rust bucket, one horse, nothing to do town that I found right. very striking. Because mm-hmm. that to me was a, something that I had never really been exposed to, even in most of my pop culture, or I just was too young to be paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know the text... Uh, one thing to go with that too is like I always like you know uh, Meg Tilly, somebody who just launches and gone by the end of the eighties, but like great performer to always check. I always to see a performance I hadn't seen before of hers. Like she's she'd go on to Psycho too. They'd carry her too. So someone in this production, it's like uh, Tilly, bring her over here. But um, oh, always good to yeah see her around and yeah this this. This one had an authenticity to it uh, that I felt natural. Like there was, it's really random to think this in spots, but there was a scene where uh, Matt Dillon and his drug buddy go. They they're in an apartment complex, and it looks like a real Midwestern apartment complex. And I just, it just, it didn't look like it was trying to fake or be phony or anything like that. It just, I, I felt like I was watching something real. Like it, and it, it's odd. It strikes me with that sequence and just that location of the shot, but just the way they shot it and the, the air, like I could, I could feel and breathe that scene. And it was really interesting to come from this movie. Um, and I, I would say in the last decade or well, 20 years or so, and again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I would say Alexander Payne is someone that's made a point to have that level of authenticity in his films. Mm-hmm. Uh, when dealing with that particular slice of life, even things like making sure that his cars have rear view mint windows. Yeah. Which in a lot of films, they take that out because it's easier to see the, the, the actor. I mean, uh, the times we're living, just go shoot in the city it takes place in. Why not? 
Yeah. You know, why, why not? Like, get, you know, it helps, it helps the town. It helps the towns. We have good transportation, good communication, good delivery. Like, in our easily connected society, like, that should be happening. I mean, it, it yeah. I mean, we shouldn't have to go to Georgia to make Kentucky, you know. It, it, <laughs> uh, you are correct. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. There, and and I, I know there are political beefs with leadership in other states and stuff that happen. But, like, not everybody who lives there believes in that, votes for that, everything else. And it's a larger population that, you know, might not agree with that or something like that. And you hurt them, too, like, just because they're leaders. Yeah. Suck ass. And the, the, uh, the other issue is even a decade ago when we were still seeing mainstream films that were about, quote unquote, small town America, like Nebraska or uh, uh, Mud or, and I'm stalling because the name of it is escaping me, uh, Miles Teller and Shailene. Oh, Spectacular Now. I like that yes. movie a lot. That's Which a is a terrific I film. About, I talked to the other day with Newers about that. I was like, you guys remember that? I love that yeah. movie, and I haven't thought about it since the year I saw it. But the tragedy of it is, is that movies like that, even when they existed at a studio level, oftentimes they wouldn't play wide enough to actually make it the theaters in the cities they took place in. Mm-hmm. So when when you know sometimes you know filmmakers and actors and whatever get in trouble online for saying we need more movies about you know real America, they're not wrong because we do. But also, they're commercially speaking, when a lot of those movies would come out, they would play so limited that they'd be mostly frequented by people in big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a danger when you, when films like that are only consumed by people on these on the coast, stereotypically speaking, that be, they become sort of like tourism, cinematic yeah. tourism, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Makes sense. Like, I don't want to say like a zoo because that's too mean, but yeah. And conversely, when something that is is pitched at quote unquote, you know, middle America that is mainstream and does break out, then you get American Sniper. Right. <laughs> and there are a lot of reasons why that movie broke out as well as it did, but that's one of them. Right. You know, Lone Survivor, which is a you know, smaller sized hit. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have films aimed at that demographic, and maybe I'm talking about a you know a world that no longer exists because this is stuff that I wrote about. You know, my first two years at Forbes, back when we had a thriving multiplex industry before streaming, you know, basically changed the game. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 great when you make movies like Nebraska as long as they actually play in Nebraska. Yeah, Tex, a movie about Nebraska and a kid who wants to go to Indiana. Fair enough. Text. Now one of you is about to become Miss Universe. The other will be the first runner-up of their important position because if for any reason the winner cannot fulfill her obligation for the entire year, the first runner-up becomes Miss Universe. Now ladies and gentlemen, I shall read the name of the first runner-up and then Miss Universe. The first runner-up is Miss Guam, Miss Canada, is Miss Universe. All right. Um, speaking of, well, speaking of nothing, we're just going to the TV ratings. Nielsen uh, top ten for this week. Uh, number one, the aforementioned Miss Universe pageant on CBS 
Number two, Too Close for Comfort on ABC. Number three, Three's Company, ABC. Number four, 60 Minutes on CBS. Number five, a rerun of WKRP in Cincinnati on CBS. Number six, Trapper John MD on CBS. Number seven, Jefferson's on CBS. Number eight, Heart to Heart on ABC. Number nine, Laverne and Shirley. And number 10, give me a break. Scott, I had an interesting thing that has nothing to do with these shows. Well, thank God. I was When I'm no, searching for the clips and stuff when I'm editing, I found a one. You remember I had a news story about taxi changing networks? Yeah. And one of them, the advertisement said, same great show, just a better network. Just oh, now Jesus. on a better network. I was like, dang, shots fired. Brutal. My God. I was like, wow, they would never do that today. Like, that's a bit harsh. It was a bit harsh, but yeah, same, and it was all happy. Same great show, just a better network. Just on a better network. Just I always like, I was like, shoot. Wish that there was a little bit more gamesmanship in that sense. Like, I always, you know, I always, and this was like, you know, God, eleven years ago or ten years ago, because I'm an old man now. But I remember Sony released the second and spectacular trailer to Skyfall, attached to Prince uh, to the opening weekend, of The Born Legacy, mm-hmm. and I always felt that. They should have aired that at the end of the board legacy saying, you know, you want a spy action movie that doesn't suck. Here you go. Come back. That reminds me of um, like the game is like Conan O'Brien hosted the Emmys once. And he was talking about how NBC because NBC after like friends left the air struggled a little bit. They're like used to have, you know, just like NBC, you know, number one network must see TV. You know, they've gone from that to in the top five. For <laughs> but yeah, kind of funny stuff. But yeah, that's our TV lineup. We're moving on now to our next film, The Last American Virgin. Nobody has more fun than The Last American Virgin. Me? It's about hope. Tonight can really be the big night. And dreams. The highs and lows. You're not going to get anything from me. The ups and downs of growing up. The Last American Virgin. A comedy about friendship, love, and everything in between. The Last American Virgin. See it or be it. From Canon Release. Now playing at theaters and drive-ins near you. Directed by Boaz Davidson. Written by Boaz Davidson. Starring Lawrence Monason. I'll give Teddy Bear a kiss. Diane Franklin... Steve Anton, Joe Rubo, Louisa Moritz, Brian Peck, and Kimmy Robertson, Pizza Delivery Boy Gary, Loudmouth David, and Hunky Rick are three high school students out to lose their virginity any way they can. Gary falls for transfer student Karen, who gets involved with Rick. Uh, this this is a remake of uh, Boaz Davidson's film Lemon Popsicle, which came from another country. I can't, wherever the... Israel. Israel, yes, where the Golden Globus originates uh, for Canon Films. This was the, one of the big launchers for Canon Films. He also directed X-Ray, if you saw that one, uh, the slasher movie. That's a, another Valentine's Day slasher movie. It's a, corny, it's funny. Uh, as a writer, he wrote Hot Resort, Delta Force 3, lots of schlocky genre TV. Now, nowadays, he's a second unit director, having worked on Neil LeBute's uh, Booker Man, the Conan, the Barbarian remake, and Expendables 2, doing second unit stuff. Um, yeah, uh, so this one has a notable thing that the soundtrack reportedly cost just as much as the movie. It uh, doesn't surprise me. It's a good soundtrack. It's a killer soundtrack. They bought... <laughs> They bought already hits to put in the movie or on the soundtrack. And it is 
killer. Like this one has like I know we'll talk about fast times here in a couple weeks. This one can hold up to that with the soundtracks at least. I, I'm you know that's that's arguable because I mean you have Ario Speedwagons keep on loving you journeys open arms. Um, shake it up by the cars. Those get used a bunch. Um, just lo- the police are on there. It's it's big. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a terrific soundtrack. It's definitely playing in the American right. Graffiti game. Right. So I love this movie, and it's a little bit trashier than like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and stuff. That's the, our prestige one. We'll talk about in a few weeks. But there's a brutal honesty to this movie that I love. Like I'm addicted to it. It's it, you know this is notable for having the biggest downer ending, but I just there's something about this movie that feels you, you know it's it could I I could imagine it offending people watching it today, but like that's what people were that's people are like like this is an honest depiction of what's going on. I think it is a more authentic version of the nerdy high school boy tries to get laid movie yes and that includes some cringe elements that's like um and he's, uh, you know, he's not what, the good like he gets hurt and he yeah. takes it out like he is yeah. it's honest like it's yeah he doesn't figure and out the nice way to do things he the striking thing about this is of course the last 15 minutes of the movie where mm-hmm. the female lead gets pregnant with courtesy of the quote-unquote bad boy and gets an abortion and other than the the lead of the film being there and raising helping raise money for that abortion because it's expensive he spends his own money on it yeah Yeah, and but the actual medical procedure is you know very matter of fact yeah you know there's no dilemma there's no hand-wringing there's no you know and again this is 40 years ago we should be past this point right clearly not um, and it is very sad that we're still at a point where it's very rare in mainstream films for characters to get an abortion, mm-hmm. whether guiltily or otherwise. Yeah. I mean, the last one I can remember that wasn't about abortion, you know, I mean, you know, uh, obvious child comes to mind in 2014, Coach Carter in 2005, mm-hmm. and anything else you can think of <laughs> other than Dirty Dancing in 1987, uh. which, you know, the, the grim irony is, you know, Everyone loves Dirty Dancing, and they remember mm. the last twenty minutes of that movie. Yeah, the joke I always make is that they always talk about remaking Dirty Dancing, and then someone at Lionsgate actually watches the movie. He's like, "Oh shit, this movie's about an abortion! Abort! Right? Abort! Abort!" And you know, for the record, this is being recorded about a week or two, about a week and a half after uh, we got word that Roe v. Wade might be being struck down. Mm. So we're all in a very bad mood about this kind of stuff right now. Right. And again, you know, I, I think. It's been a huge problem with pop culture over the last 20 years that films have gotten so big and the number of smaller films playing at a theatrical level have dwindled that you're not getting just mainstream run-of-the-mill movies that deal with this stuff in a matter-of-fact, non-judgmental way that might have slightly moved the needle. Yeah. I mean, you're never going to negotiate with, you know, insane people or just downright cruel or evil people that want to do what they want to do because they know it will hurt people. Right. But in terms of general political consensus, more movies like this would have helped yeah. to skew the conversation for a medical procedure that at any given time, two thirds of the country is in favor of. Right. Yeah. And 
you know, we got to mention that the, the friend that got her pregnant, it's his friend that got her pregnant. The yeah. friend that he told that, you know, he was interested in her and he went, his friend went for her anyway because this guy wasn't going to make moves. We all know that, but we feel bad. And then, yeah, but then he steps up when it happens because the friend's like, get away from me, whatever. When she tries to tell him she's pregnant and he, you know, puts her through the abortion, he, he finds a safe house for them to, for her to recover in that they stay in and they find each other then and then sleep together but she goes back to the the friend at the end which yeah that happens uh, that yeah. happens you know you can jokingly call this friend you know friend zone the movie um right. but again it's 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 an authentic realistic ending for that kind of story and it's diane um, franklin so we get it we get yeah. his you know Easily. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a cultural conversation about, there's always a cultural conversation about how romantic comedies and princess fantasies have skewed expectations in terms of the girls and women that grew up consuming them. Mm-hmm. I would say there's maybe not as much damage done, but certainly some damage done in terms of the, you know, shy, nerdy outcast gets the girl by being a nice guy at the end kind of movies. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I don't think these films are harmful or problematic or evil in a vacuum, but I think when every movie is can't hardly wait, yeah, you know, that, that creates expectations. I, I think, too, like, one of the things I like, and I'm not going to say this, this movie portrays women in some, like, magnificent light, but the guys are, like, obvious pigs in this movie when it happens but the girls they're allowed to be fun promiscuous Mm -hmm. and make their own dumb decisions like the girls at the beginning that they bring home or bring the house like they they want to do drugs they they want to like that's that's they're not and they're they're they are a reflectant of our main guys like it was the perfect three girls to bring back with them because they're just as dopey as our they're a mirror image of the guys we have and yeah, the the girls are allowed. Diane Franklin's allowed to be herself, make her own decisions, and you know, make the dumb one if she wants to. It's her, it's her own thing. the The one thing with the guy, you know, the main character. Of this is goes on to play Teddy in Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, who we all know because this is run that through your computer thing. But he, his viciousness in it is to distract his friend away from Diane Franklin. That's he's not like trying to hurt him. But he's trying to. He knows his friend's not a, you know, loyal, you know, faithful guy or whatever, and he gets what he asked for by doing all this. But yeah, I mean, they they resort to they want to they resort to like sleeping with prostitutes. They all get crabs at one point, and they have a pool scene that's pretty funny. I yeah, trying to, trying I, I was to slightly amused by the the doctor physician who was like, crabs at your age? What the hell? <laughs> but it, it plays funny. There is some lost in translation stuff that wound up stuck in this movie. Like when he goes to visit her after she has the abortion, he brings like a Christmas tree and some bag of oranges, which yeah. that's a carryover from Lemon Popsicle, the original film. So somebody didn't think uh, Americans would probably bring flowers or something that's... But as, know, popsicles are delicious. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's kind yeah. of funny that um, he brings a Christmas tree and some bag. Maybe it was a bag of lemons. I don't know. But otherwise, this movie just works and it's funny. It's not long. Um, no, it's ninety minutes. And yeah, it, it's a heartbreaker in many ways. It's thought provoking a bit. It makes you laugh. It and it's got a killer score. Like I really, I I hadn't. I don't know that I'd seen this before. Or something, but when the Blu-ray came out from Olive Films. I got it for review. I was like, oh, 
pop this is probably some cannon trash and i was like really smitten by it i was like holy crap this feels real maybe it's because of old age looking back and being able to reflect on my experience in in life and seeing a lot of like yeah that's this movie got like a lot was like honest about a lot of things that most movies would hold back on or embellish um yeah it, it just very very honest movie about teens which um, might be too much for some people. Well, you know, if you, if you, depending on what you're looking for there, you know, it does kind of pull the rug out from under you right at the last minute. That's not a criticism. I think mm-hmm. that's one reason why it works and why it works as art, but you know, it's, it's, it, it ends on a much more serious note than I'd say the preceding 70 minutes or so have established mm-hmm. um, for better or worse. And again, I think that's to its credit as a piece of art, but in terms of, you know, what do people think they're going to get when they put on this picture? I don't know. Um, I don't think the title helps. Like the title makes it sound like some kind of Porky's knockoff. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, and that's probably the idea to probably get a gotcha yeah. title uh, with the, some of these movies, like horror movies and comedies. Is like, eh, let's put it. Eh, eh, tricky Dicks. That's what we'll call this one. Tricky Dicks. That's what they <laughs> You know, like, oh, it's Tricky Dicks. I bet it's funny. Uh, might see some boobs too. Like, ah, so what's he, and you get that with this, but you, yeah. I mean, you get a lot of naked dudes too, like butts probably. I don't think we, did we see any wiener in this movie? Uh, honestly, I don't recall. Gotcha. It's not European, so probably not. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, though, like, uh, yeah, if you don't have REO Speedwagons, keep on loving you in your head after seeing this movie. Cause they were like, they're proud to get that song. Cause, Oh yeah, uh, you know it's 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 also funny how on the nose some of the song choices are. Oh yeah, the the what, um, what was the one they you know, open arms pops up right at the exact right moment to sort of right. qualify as music musical exposition. Mm-hmm. There's that um, one. Is it like an Alan Parker song or something? I can't, uh, like that one shows up and is that one's yeah. the most on the nose thing in there? Um, but no, I. This is a high recommend for me if you haven't seen it. Teen movies. It's a solid picture. Yeah. And Canon Films, this is one of their first big hits. And they would go on to just take Chuck Norris from the previous movie we talked about and go to town <laughs> making stuff with him and uh, Charles Bronson. Um, but they wouldn't really get into these comedies too much after this. Who figure? Yeah. Yeah. They yeah maybe if they had you know kept making movies like this along with the schlock. Mm-hmm. Maybe history would have been very different. Yeah, Troma went on the sex comedy. Yeah, bandwagon is what they did. I mean, so. you know, instead they became ill you know, from the studio that brought you the Last American Virgin. Yeah, Masters of the Universe. Right, exactly. You know, Superman Four: The Quest for Peace. First discount edition. First, you like the Last American uh, Virgin. Now, Ninja. <laughs> Or Ninja Attack, or what? They made like a t- Enter the Ninja, the American Ninja. I don't know if that's them or not. You know, yeah, uh, no, yes, it is. American Ninja okay. is them. Yeah, they American Ninja Enter the Ninja with Franco Nero as a ninja. Um, and they uh, did that. Who was that one guy? They made a lot of ninja films with. Oh, well, I I, I watched the first two American Ninja movies last summer before mm-hmm. Snake Eyes. Two came is out. hilarious. It's great. Two is interesting. Yeah, I think one is what it. You know, it's yeah, yeah, it's fine. And I, I, again, you know, getting back to what we discussed on the very first episode of this podcast, this is a million dollar movie that looks a lot bigger than it, it is, partially just because it's all co- visually coherent. 
Yeah. In a way that we used to take for granted. Well, yeah, like, yeah, it's weird because there was just that scene where they're in the pool and stuff. And I'm like, this looks like a big movie. Whereas today, you'd be like, this looks like TV blown up on the big screen. Like, yeah. And this is quote unquote a junky, cheapy film, but it looks like cinema <laughs> for the last American version. Um, once a week with AT40 and you know how your favorite songs are doing across the USA from the rocky coast of Maine to the sandy shores of Hawaii speaking of killer soundtracks Casey Kasem had one this week uh, with his top 10 number one this week stealing the spot Scott it's the eye of the tiger and the thrill of the fight and the thrill of a fight by Survivor I'm going counting up this week I'm Instead of counting down. Uh, number two is Rosanna by Toto, Holding Strong. Also Holding Strong, Hurt, Hurt So Good by John Cougar. Number four, Hold Me by Fleetwood Mac. That one's staying still. Uh, Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band moves up to number five. Chicago jumps in from number 11 to number six with Hard to Say I'm Sorry. That was the song from Summer Lovers, Scott. <laughs> it's all coming together. Number seven, Don't You Want Me, The Human League. Number eight. Jumping in here, Air Supply has arrived with Even the Nights Are Better. Uh, number nine, Only the Lonely by the Motel stands pat and Keep the Fire Burden dropping in at number 10 from Ario Speedwagon, who had a song in a movie we talked about this week. When Bill told Chuck he wanted to start an <clears throat> escort service in the city morgue, Chuck was reluctant. Are you going to change your mind? But soon, everyone was dying to get in. There are women with strange men, and we are making money from that. Is this a great country or what? This is a morgue. You're partying in a morgue. Night Shift, rated R. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. And uh, Rod Stewart, he's a guy who has a song in a movie this week, but not in the top ten. He's uh, part of Night Shift, directed by Ron Howard who had been off Happy Days for about two years at this point. It's his second feature film. He'd done like three TV movies between this and Grand Theft Auto, which he did for Carmen. Splash was his next movie. Uh, written by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, starring Henry Winkler, Shelley Long, Michael Keaton, Gina Hecht, Richard Belzer, Vincent Chiavelli, and the lovely, wonderful Joe Spinell. A mild-mannered morgue attendant is assigned to the night shift, and his new co-worker, along with his prostitute neighbor, convince him of running a prostitution ring out of the morgue. Uh, the Gans who wrote this was the creator of Laverne and Shirley and Joni Loves Chachi, so obviously there's a Howard connection. Uh, he and Mandel, who uh, also wrote this, would write Splash, Spies Like Us, Amazing Stories, Parenthood, City Slickers, A League of Their Own, Multiplicity, and Ed TV. Uh, Winkler was still playing the Fonz on TV at this time. So this is kind of a chance to break out in a different role. And this That's is interesting because in this film, he looks much too old to be playing the Fonz. He does, doesn't he? Doesn't he? <laughs> uh, That's neither criticism nor compliment. It's just he looks like an adult. Right. Uh, Shelley Long had just finished her first year of Cheers and also had Curtis Hansen's Losing It uh, with Tom Cruise this same year. And... Big breakout for Michael Keaton here. This is the mm-hmm. the one that gave us Michael Keaton. He's amazing in this movie. He almost uh, got fired for reasons that I don't recall offhand. Oh, really? I think initially he was he d- didn't, but you know, history bo- you know history went out. 
Yeah. Well, this was supposed to be John Belushi, but he said no. And he's just electric. You're like, this guy's going to be a star. Like, you just, this is one of those things. Um, yeah, Belushi, who said no, died while this movie was in production. So they would have had to use someone else. Or, maybe, or if you believe in the butterfly theory, maybe he wouldn't have used too much eyeball that night. True. Um, but yeah, he's got, like, he cracks me up in this, man. He is like, my, like, 100 miles an hour. There, there was a scene where they scuffle him him in a... He's so random. Him and Winkler scuffle later in the movie, and, like, he just says his lines, like, hey, easy, I'm wearing white. Like, wait, what? <laughs> um, no, it's it's a high-wire, scene-stealing, you know, star-making performance. Yeah, all he had... It to- helps that it's a supporting role, that he's, he's not yep. the protagonist. So he's basically the devil to the... You know, Henry Winkler's angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, not to not to step over what you're saying, but yeah, it's absolutely a firecracker of a uh, star-making performance. And he go on to be Mr. Mom next the next year, like mm-hmm. that, and that would be a big one for him. Um, oh. so yeah, what do you think of Night Night Shift? I enjoyed it. I had I, I I had seen it once many 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 years ago. Mm-hmm. So this was sort of like watching it for the first time. Obviously, it's a very formulaic picture. It's you know an uptight, you know goes by all the rules kind of guy that's not right. really happy despite you know living a conventional as expected life that goes through you know a an adventure a comic adventure and realizes that he doesn't want to do what he's supposed to be doing and he doesn't want to be with who he's supposed to be with and ends up with you know an unconventional life at the end mm-hmm. and in that sense it's fine again you know michael keaton is is you know, a live wire. You know, I could, I could joke and say that if more people had seen this film, there'd be less whininess in 1988 about him playing Batman. Well, because well, he's kind of scary, unhinged, you know, in a comedic way, right? Especially in the early scenes of this picture when you're first introduced to him. Well, with Batman, they rushed into production. What, clean and sober? Like, yeah, he like they hurried, put him in that movie, and got that out. And so, but look, he could be dramatic. <laughs> Which I just thought, Mister Mr. Mom would have been enough to be like. Well, hey, that, that was. Or- Taken as a broad comedy, right? But, but yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think most of that complaint just came from people who had only seen him in Beetlejuice, right? Right, or maybe like the Dream Team or something. I think that was before. No, that was after. Dream that was after. after. Yeah, it's nineties. Um, um, but anyway, uh, oh, neither here nor there. No, it's it's a really fun movie. Like, there's nothing to it. Uh, it's another movie where we handle prostitution <laughs> in the in a non-judgmental in a non-judgmental way fire and brimstone way yeah yeah uh like there's there's always the turn of where the guy like is fine with everything and everything until it hits a public part and then he turns on it as he didn't before and then has to come to realize i'm gonna i'm the asshole this is yeah you know, <laughs> it's very uh, similar to Ty West uh, X from a couple months ago, right? Where the guy is all fine with porn until his girlfriend wants to do a porn scene. Yeah, yeah. Or the, I don't know. If, yeah, they're they're boyfriend girlfriend at that point, right? And again, that's 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 a trope. You know mm-hmm. that the he's fine with her being a prostitute until she still wants to be a prostitute after they've you know slept together. Yeah, she shows up the next day. But I, you know, I, the thing I, I love about this movie is silly as. Any given character in the film appears. They're all like well-rounded, treated like humans. Even Keaton, who's the yeah. weirdo, has a heart, a conscience, gets the situations and all sorts of things. And like, he has no problem with the prostitutes. They're, you know, he he's equal. He's, he sees him truly as equal. You see, it as a performer, he's able to convey that, which is amazing. Yes. And like, he's like, what? She's coming to work. 
No, you know, you know, like all that stuff. And yeah, you see him and Long on a level that Winkler isn't. And it's like an amazing staged acted scene where he's an odd person out. And it's like, dude, you were like all fine when one of them. And now you've stepped outside for like two seconds and you're all weird about it. But it works. And yeah, I just like the way Shelley Long's handled all the all the other prostitutes and stuff like they get just you know it's i have to say i got excited when richard belzer shows up at the end thinking you know thinking he's a cop like oh it's the first appearance of munch well he's in the beginning too yeah 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 but then he turns out to be you know one of the the mobsters or one of the bad guys Mm -hmm. um but anyway that's that's random trivia this was one of his first films yeah um well it's got a lot of bits to it too hidden within it um there's the delivery bit and stuff like that and then Chevelli shows up as one of his first movies. Yeah, like right at the you know, he's got a great, very funny bit right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's as normal as I've ever seen him look, by the way. Yeah, uh, just because. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, my pick for possibly greatest character actor of the seventies, Joe Spinell's here. He's the first yeah. one we've had that he's shown up in. He's great, and I I've thought this the other day. I watched In the Heat of the Night uh, recently again, and I'm like, man. There was something better to movies where we just didn't care about sexiness so much with casting every part and just let people with interesting faces, whether they were handsome or not or something, just an interesting face be in and a movie. if you wanted someone to play the penguin, you'd hire who looked a lot like Richard Kind, who, you know, with, you know, the worst possible version of Richard Kind, mm-hmm. you'd hire Richard Kind and put on grody makeup and maybe give him a pillow. Mm-hmm. So instead of hiring Colin friggin' Farrell and turn him into an unrecognizable demon person. Or you know who makes a good uh, Fantastic Four thing? Jamie Bell, right? <laughs> you know, like, like because in the heat of the night, there's the, the diner guy who winds up being an integral part of the plot, but like, he's like, I don't know. He's interesting. Like I could see somebody in a small town finding him handsome, but he's also like, it's just an interesting, an interesting face. Joe Spinell's got an interesting face. He's never going to play a romantic lead in anything or some sexy guy, but he's far more fascinating to just watch him in a frame than, you know, next generic blonde stud X. That's a lead in a film, you know, like these people have character in their face that it's just like, um, Chevelli too. Like, yeah, you know, or uh, and getting back to homicide, who played Crossetti, John Pantoliano. Is that his Joe Pantoliano? No, no, I apologize. Oh. But yeah, um, these people. This also, this movie also, I didn't see him, but cameos by Kevin Costner, John and- Polito. Oh, John Polito, yeah, yeah, From- who is you know the definition Cole of a guy, yeah. you know character actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. we now those have to be super sexy. But like Kevin Costner, Shannon Doherty show up in this movie. Did not see them. One of the prostitutes is Drew Barrymore's mom, um, <laughs> and she go on to play one of the prostitutes. Also, is Michael Jackson's girlfriend in the Thriller video that will come out later <laughs> in this year. Yeah, um, but no, th- this is a yeah, this is such a fun movie that I. It's probably appropriately thought of, but maybe now underseen or cult ish because. Time has passed it by. Yeah, I mean, it's it was a solid three star film in 1981, mm-hmm. and it'd be nice if people occasionally stumbled upon it just because it's right. fun. To, again, it shows even from the beginning, Ron Howard was an incredibly eclectic 
filmmaker in terms of making films that are very good and films that are very bad right. and making films of any genre you can think of. Yeah. Um, I mean, the same guy that made Parenthood made Ransom. The same right. guy that made Solo made Rush. The same guy that made The Missing made uh, Apollo you know, 13. Apollo you know, 13. That, yeah, no, he's you know, a good paper. workman, old school yeah. workman, but he's got and a he, little more flourish, but like he doesn't have anything like distinct. He can just get the job done in a yeah, classical he, he, way. It's If anything, his signature is almost a lack of signature. Right. In that, you know, but, whether it's a lack of ego, whether it's just like a what, senior, whatever reason. professionalism on the screen, yeah. like it looks like a well-made film with somebody. There's some there's not some strong vision there, but at least knows how to make an appropriate looking piece of cinema. Yeah. And with the exception of the Grinch, um, <laughs> but everyone's got one of those. Um, but yeah, I mean, he is, you know, I, I don't want to say he's underrated because he's doing just fine. Mm-hmm. But he certainly has a ridiculously wide and varied filmography that right. I find impressive, especially when you look back. Right. Yeah. And this is this is his first major release that he has because Grand Theft Auto was a little bit smaller on the Corman scale and stuff. But um, yeah, and also seeing the Happy Days stuff continue on through you know the people who wrote for those shows at Winkler. Who starred in them and continue to be part because Winkler and Howard worked together multiple times, even through like Arrested Development, like they would be uh, combining efforts there. The Rod Stewart song "That's What Friends Are For" is was later recorded by Dion Warwick, uh, Gladys Knight, Elton John, and Stevie Wonder, which went number one in '86. This is not that version. This is the Rod Stewart <laughs> version, which I like the synthesized uh, backing on this one quite a bit it's a nice nice outro song for this movie um but yeah nice just it's yeah it's got a it's got one of those uh you saw the poster or the vhs box with them crazy getting out of the car and stuff like that and it's maybe something you never saw but it's something you should check out if it's playing around or on a streaming service or something like that um shout factory put out a good blu-ray of it a few years ago and i i think i think you just watch it on youtube right now it's just like legit there, like a good copy of it, because uh, I don't Whoops. think it's available. I don't think it's That's available. Four for- bucks, I won't get back. <laughs> yeah, I didn't check. Yeah, so That's I sent okay. you a link. I sent you a link. You might have. That's right. quite possible. But yeah, so night night shift. Uh, but how did it do at the box office this weekend, Scott? Let's go to the top ten for the box office. Number one was once again E.T. the Extraterrestrial. <laughs> He's back. Telling the best little whorehouse in Texas to get the fuck off its lawn, which is exactly how E.T. talks. Uh, they're, neck, that, they're neck and neck again, though. Yes, like, they are pretty close. $10.4 million, a 7% drop in Weekend 8, still playing in 1,555 screens, which is wider than any release in the top 16, I guess, by a, a healthy margin. It has now made $169.5 million, and it's not remotely done yet. And number two, you have the best little whorehouse in Texas, uh, earning $9 million, dropping a perfectly solid 24% in 1,435 theaters. Those two are the only films playing in more than 1,150 theaters, by the way. It would uh, bring its 10-day total to $28.4 million. It would eventually earn approximately $69.7 million domestic. Coming in at number three, the limited release of a film we'll be talking about, I assume, next week? The, down the road here, not next week. Okay. I, 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 I'll leave it to you. 
officer and a gentleman, the the uh, Deborah Winger, uh-huh. Richard Gere, Lou Gossett Jr., who won an Oscar for the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the romantic military melodrama would open with three point three million dollars in just three hundred forty six screens. We will be talking a, about it in two weeks. Yes, for a rock solid nine thousand five hundred fifty one dollar per screen average. Uh, mm-hmm. Skipping ahead a little bit, it would be a massive smash, earning one hundred twenty three. Oh, excuse me, one hundred thirty million before the end by the end of its run. Uh, it would be one of the biggest movies of nineteen eighty two. Yeah, and it would gross more than Star Trek, more than Blade Runner. You know, again, it drives you nuts when you look at this stuff and the kind of movies that used to make more money than the kind of movies that Hollywood is still desperately trying to turn into a thing. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, they didn't never made a captain and a gentleman. So, <laughs> although we are getting Dom, Top Gun Maverick in a couple weeks, so yeah. make of that what you will. Um, well, young at least doctor- with Top Gun Re- Re- Maverick, they knew not to make one without Tom Cruise. They could have easily made true. Top Guns all through the '90s, but they, they they knew what they had. I'm pretty sure Paramount was in position of, yeah, we're not going to piss off Tom Cruise by doing that, right? Because we need him, and now they still need him for different reasons. But that's a longer conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why Top Gun Maverick is getting a conventional theatrical window this summer. It's not mm-hmm. going to be on Paramount Plus in 45 days, right? I don't know if it's 120, as has been reported here and there, but again, I don't think it's going to be on Paramount Plus in 45 days. This is being recorded in early May, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens by the time you all listen to this. Right. For all I know, it's one of summer's biggest hits, and it's going to play in theaters forever, or it belly flopped because nobody off the internet gave a damn, and it's on VOD in 60 days. Right. Whatever. Probably somewhere in between there. Number four, Young Doctors in Love, two point six million, down sixteen percent for a fourteen point two million dollar seventeen day gross. And Night Shift opening in six hundred eighty three theaters for a fine whatever two point five four million dollar opening weekend. It would eventually earn approximately twenty one million. Hmm. And again, this is the sign of the times where a film could open with under. You know, four million dollars and still goes to twenty million, which, when you're a star-driven comedy like this that didn't cost a gazillion dollars, everybody gets to work again. Rocky Three will not be killed. Uh, Two point <laughs> four million in sixth place, down fourteen percent, playing in eleven hundred and forty-seven theaters. By far more than any other film other than ET and Best Little Horror House in Texas. So this is really the sleeper biggie other than E.T., obviously. Yeah. Uh, other than E.T., it's the sleeper biggie of the summer in terms of franchisee, IP, whatever the hell you want to call it. $96.4 million after 10 weekends. It would eventually earn around 125. World according to GARP would earn 2.34 excuse me 2.4 million in its second weekend of release a drop of 18% for 7.1 six pack 2 million dollars 0.1.1% up adding 100 screens power kenny dollar yeah uh yeah yeah thank you for reminding me what that movie is i i i know the movie but i always forget the title i always think it's like a bodybuilding movie but no, no, money. it's it's the boxcar children with Kenny Rogers flick. Right, yeah, kind of enjoyed that. Poltergeist, another leggy, leggy picture. A ninth weekend in theaters, one point eight million dollars, fifty four point nine so far. And rounding out the top ten is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, having been re released a couple weeks ago. 
It would earn $1.6 million for a 43% drop after losing 490 theaters for a $12.7 million 17-day re-release total. Hmm. And then you have Annie, Star Trek II, Firefox, Tron, and then... In 15th place, cannot be killed, cannot be stopped. The Sword and the Sorcerer. Yes. With $1.1 million, it went up 15% from last weekend. I don't know why it lost 28 theaters, but after 15 weekends in theaters, it has earned $35.4 million. I wonder if it's being tacked on on drive-ins to something or something. I don't know. That might make sense. Being double Um, bill. I don't know. I don't know what they double bill with it because usually a new movie and an old movie, but maybe Night Shift and uh, Night Shift and Sword of the Sorcerer. No, that wouldn't. Uh, directed by Albert Payan, who yeah, is yeah. not doing it all these days, apparently. So hopefully he'll still be with us by the time you listen yeah. to this. Yeah. If uh, not, RIP, condolences, etc. Yes. He had a very interesting career. Yes, he did. So yeah, that that's uh, that's our week, Scott. We're into August. We're in the final month. Of the summer of 82 of 40. I don't think that was 82. Um, But before we head out, Scott, um, let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Forbes.com. The Ticket Booth is the official name of the blog. I'm at Twitter at at Scott Mendelson. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Tune in next week as Scott and I dress like pirates to get high with Cheech and Chong and take in some Pink Floyd. All that. And more as the summer of 82 at 40 continues into the first full weekend of August 1982, our final month. Stay full, boss. It's all led up to this. Do not miss the last five minutes. I, that's probably not true. The summer of 82 at 40. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.